0: And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. grace and truth came through Jesus Christ no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the father's side he has made him known John 1 verses 1 through 18 well good morning Northbrook For those that don't know me, my name is Paul Kepes. I am one of the elders here at the church, and it's my privilege today to share with you and to kick off our new summer series, All is Grace, the Gospel of John. I'm excited to share with you this morning what God has placed on my heart. I'm married um, to Monica. We have three children. Will is 21, Anna is 19, and Grace is 16. Northbrook has been a very important part of my family's story for over 20 years now. Everyone in our family is active in the church. We've made our home in Chicago for the last 25 years. We have a log home here in Hubertus, but this year it became official. We've reversed the primary residences, and uh, Northbrook Church is the main reason for that. So for the next 12 weeks we are going to take a deep dive into what is one of probably the most important books in the Bible. Let us prepare ourselves for for the word of prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for all the ways that you love and provide for us. Thank you for this time that we've set apart together for everyone gathered, both here and online. Lord, we trust that every person listening right now is not by accident, that you would have something for each one of us as we earnestly seek to learn from you and draw closer to you. Do a powerful work, Lord. And so we take this moment right now as an act of worship. We quiet our minds, open our hearts. We lean into what you would have for us today. And Lord, I pray that anything I say that is on my own accord would be quickly forgotten, but that anything that is of you, Lord, would remain and challenge our minds and stir in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Before we start digging into and opening up the text, I'd like to begin with some background and context. John is one of the most important figures in Christianity. Jesus loved him very dearly. He authored a total of five books of the Bible, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. This puts him behind Paul's 12 books, and it ties him with Moses for second place, who wrote the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Some scholars think that Moses may have also authored Job, and if so, then John falls to third place. The Gospel of John is very distinct, and it's set apart from the other three Gospels. Some of you may know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels, and that's because they are very similar to each other. Synoptic comes from the Greek word synoptikos, You have sin, meaning same or together, like synonym or synchronize. And optic, meaning seeing. So synoptic, seeing together. And this is because the first three Gospels use very similar language, sometimes word-for-word language. For example, nearly 90% of Mark's content can be found in Matthew and we contrast that with John In his writings are about 90% unique to the other three gospel accounts there's a lot in there John contains no genealogy though no temptations, no exorcisms not even any parables quick fun fact about John uh, the word John is mentioned a lot 23 times in the ESV and 28 times in the NIV for example And every time it's mentioned, he's referring to John the Baptist. John never refers to himself by name. He always uses descriptions like the disciple whom Jesus loved. But perhaps the key distinction between the Gospels is that the emphasis in the synoptic Gospels was on recording the things that Jesus said and did. But John was less concerned about Jesus' actions in and of themselves and he was more concerned about what those actions said about who Jesus was. John was very interested in the theology of Christ. The NLT Study Bible, uh, they suggest that uh, Matthew can be thought of as the teacher, Mark the storyteller, Luke, the historian, and John, the theologian. And so with all the theological emphasis on Jesus, what then was John hoping to accomplish in his gospel? If only there was a way of knowing what the purpose of the book was. Well, oh, yeah, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, there's a section titled The Purpose of This Book. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so there it is. The book of John wants us to know three things. One, that Jesus is the Christ, fully human and fully divine. Two, that he is the Son of God, one in being with the Father, but distinct in person. Three, that belief in him will give you everlasting life. The book of John is a blockbuster book. And he wastes no time laying the foundations in the first verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And what are all these references to the Word? What does John mean by that? Well, fortunately, he doesn't leave us to wonder. In verse 14, he makes it clear what the word refers to. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is a metaphor for Jesus. And not that we need any further persuasion. John 1.14 makes it clear. But we can also look at Revelation, which John wrote as I mentioned In chapter 19, verse 13, where Jesus is being described as he comes again, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Jesus is called the Word of God as he returns to earth. How cool is that? So let's take a moment. Let's reread the first three verses. This time let's substitute Jesus for The word, in the beginning was Jesus. By the way, any of that sound familiar? In the beginning is deliberate. In dramatic flair, John opens up his gospel with the beautiful words of Genesis. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Super cool, right? But why use the word? Why not a different metaphor? The word word comes from the Greek word logos. And as is the case with many words, many Greek words in particular, logos has multiple meanings. So in addition to meaning the word, it can also mean plan or reason. It's where the word logic comes from. So check this out. In the beginning was the plan. In the beginning was the reason. How powerful is that? In just the first few sentences, John establishes three foundational truths upon which all of Christianity rests. One, that there is a God. Two, that Jesus is not just some moral prophet, but that he is divine. And three, that framework for the Trinity, that Jesus existed for all time with God. And with these foundations in place, John continues on and establishes that Jesus is truth in verse 14. And the word became flesh full of grace and truth. John is declaring that Jesus is truth. We see it again in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what are these references to truth about? What is truth anyways and why is it so important? English writer G.K. Chesterton once said that there are many angles at which you can fall and only one angle at which you can stand straight. Truth, by definition, is exclusive. It has no agenda it can simply be defined as that which accurately defines, reflects reality. We don't get a say in the matter. I'll give you a little example, and my wife's probably going to kill me. We've been having spirited fellowship, shall I say, on this for 25 years, but warmed bread is not toast. <laughs> she puts the setting on one. I don't know why toasters have ones. Toast means brown. It should make a sound when you bite it. Even the butter is confused. It's trying to melt. It can't quite get there. (laughs) Toast requires the caramelization of sugars and that important Maillard reaction. And hey, if you like warmed bread, it's fine. Just don't call it toast. (laughs) And while I'm at it, Sasquatch isn't real, Pastor Mike. Come on. But we have to be careful. Because truth without grace can be harsh, maybe even mean. Sometimes we need to ask ourselves if we want to be right, if we want to be in a relationship. Truth people are easy to spot, they believe in right and wrong, they are easy to admire. They have convictions and principles. They speak out against injustice, oppression and evil. They also want to change us and make us better. And they don't allow much for mistakes all the time. They can be quick to cast judgment on others. They can be slow to forgive. Anybody hear themselves in there? Please don't get me wrong. Truth is not a bad thing. I only mean to say that without grace, truth can be an excuse for being unkind. Truth is vital. Jesus is truth. He says so in John fourteen six. but sadly, truth is losing its place in society and culture. Listen to this. In 2016, Oxford English Dictionary's new word of the year is post truth. It went on to define this new word, this new truth, as quote, circumstances in which objective facts are less influential than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Friends, without truth, we're in trouble critical thinking is being replaced with thinking with our feelings there is so much division and hate in the world today and we've got our feet firmly planted in midair we no longer know who we are or what we're even doing here or what it even means to be human we love talking about our rights but we don't like to talk about what is right We all want justice. We look at the news, we see the atrocities, and we long for justice. But if there's no truth, hear me, there can be no such thing. Because if it's only emotion and personal belief, then there's no objective right and wrong. What are we even complaining about? And so Jesus makes a most meaningful statement in John 8.32 when he says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. My time is moving. Let us move on. John also writes that Jesus was full of grace. We remember from verses 14 and 17 that Jesus is both grace and truth. We also read in verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And why so much emphasis on grace? Could it be a clue to the way out of this divisive world? Two weeks ago, Pastor John talked about grace, talked about how it was undeserved favor. It's unmerited. We can't earn it. I love how philosopher Dallas Willard defines grace. It's my favorite definition of grace. He says that grace is God acting in our life to do what we cannot do on our own. Grace is God acting in our life to do what we cannot do on our own. My natural impulse is to withhold grace from others who don't deserve it. A lot of this comes from our pride and our stubbornness, and we can only overcome it when we humble ourselves to receive courage and strength from the Lord. Humility is key. It was uh, reported many years ago that Muhammad Ali was traveling on an airplane. And he is known for many things. Humility is not one of them. And the plane encountered some turbulence. The flight attendant made her way down the aisle and ensured that everyone was buckling up. And everyone complied except for Ali. So the flight attendant said, Sir, would you please fasten your seatbelt? To which Ali replied, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the flight attendant didn't miss a beat. She said, Superman don't need no airplane either. (laughs) You see, a lack of humility can sometimes distort our view of reality. And you know why? Because a lack of humility means less God, more self. And this can be especially true because our emotions can be so powerful. They can be one of the biggest obstacles that get in our way from all of the possibilities that God has for our lives. I don't feel like forgiving. I don't feel like being loving. I promise to be true to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, as long as I feel like it. And so giving grace can sometimes feel impossible when our emotions are in charge. And you might be listening to this and saying, yes, I get it. I understand that I shouldn't let emotions get in my way. I get that part. My question is how? How do I overcome it? May I give you two suggestions, please? And one comes from that great evangelist, Oswald Chambers, in what I think is one of the greatest devotionals of all time, my utmost for his highest. He speaks to how we are to overcome our emotions. There are certain things we must not pray about. Moods, for instance. Moods never go by praying. Moods go by kicking. A mood nearly always has its seat in the physical condition, not in the moral. It is a continual effort not to listen to the moods which arise from a physical condition. Never submit to them for a second. We have to take ourselves by the scruff of the neck and shake ourselves, and we will find that we can do what we said we could not. The curse with most of us is that we won't. So, as followers of Christ, we must fully commit ourselves to people who choose grace and not wait to feel like it. My second suggestion is a little more straightforward practice. Over the years, our family has developed a bunch of what we call Kepis life hacks. Various thoughts and ideas that help us through life. And one of our Kepis life hacks is practice what you're not good at. If you're not good at forgiving, then practice forgiving. Be on the ready for an occasion to pop up and commit yourself through sheer will to power through it. It's unbelievable how much easier it gets. If you're not good at being loving and you don't want to be, then practice being loving when you don't want to be. And you'll find that giving grace to others is one of the most fulfilling and satisfying things you will ever do because it brings praise and glory to our Lord. But there's also a danger with grace. And as with many things in life, we can take something beautiful that God has meant for good, and we can twist it into something that is used for harm. I'm talking about the kind of distorted grace where we only tell people what they want to hear. Let's be honest, that's a lot more comfortable than sharing the truth. These kind of grace people are pleasant to be around. They don't ruffle any feathers. They cut us a lot of slack. They're easygoing. They don't make demands. They're always welcoming. But we'll sometimes find ourselves wondering if they really like us or if they're really just trying to be liked. Please forgive me for being direct. This kind of grace can sometimes be cowardly. They accept us for who we are, but they never help us become who we should be anyone hear themselves in there because without truth grace isn't really grace it's just being accepting and nice so who then are we helping Thomas Sowell one of the great social theorists of our day he says this I love this quote when you want to help people you tell them the truth when you want to help yourself you tell them what they want to hear Because let's face it, we all love being liked. It feels good when others praise us for our kindness and understanding. Oh, Paul! (laughs) That's cheap grace. In 1937, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. In that book, he actually coins the phrase cheap grace. It's grace without the hard part. The thesis of the book is that it costs to follow Jesus because there are a lot of hard truths in Christianity and what God asks of us. We want grace without truth, forgiveness without repentance, and communion without confession. Bonhoeffer goes on to say that cheap grace is grace without the cross and grace without Jesus. Grace and truth must go together. But in many ways, they're at odds with each other, right? The very attributes of their nature don't share much in common. Are you a grace person or a truth person? Democrat or Republican? Cubs or Brewers? Go Cubs. They're kind of exclusive, right? Right? And Jesus comes along and he blows all that out of the water and says, you got it all wrong, friends, it's both. Can find a lot of Bible verses on just truth, and we can find a lot of Bible verses on just grace. But look at the emphasis John places on Jesus being both grace and truth. Let's look at verse 14 again. I think for the third time now, we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And again, in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it all comes together. As followers of Christ, we are to be both full of grace and truth. Please listen. Or is not an option. Or makes the world a worse place. Truth without grace is unkind. And grace without truth it's meaningless. The more this sinks in, the more profound it becomes. If we're all grace, then we are tempted to be okay with even sinning because we'll be covered by the grace of God and his forgiveness. Why not? If we're all truth, then we can become bitter, judgmental, and unloving. Now here's the flatter, unflattering part. Every one of us is off balance in this. personality, upbringing, and a whole bunch of other factors often lean us into being more of one than the other. And for me, I'm too much truth. Toast. I keep getting hung up on idealism, and I keep getting hung up on right and wrong. What are you more of? Which way do you lean? What do you keep getting hung up on? If you're too much grace, you're most concerned about being loved. And if you're too much truth, you're most concerned about being right, even if it means being unloved. Both have their dangers, friends. Something is wrong if no one likes you. But you know, Something's probably just as wrong if everyone likes you. That's harder to hear. Everyone didn't love Jesus. We're trying to be like him, right? If we are to be more like him, we must follow his example. The grace Jesus welcomed sinners and tax collectors and he ate with them. He had compassion on the crowds when they were hungry and far from home. He healed the leopards and the lame and the blind. And what about the truth, Jesus? He condemned many of the religious leaders of the day for being liars and hypocrites, upturning tables and throwing chairs. He prophesied judgment on Jerusalem for their unrepentant hearts. He demanded everything from his followers, even their lives. Hear me now. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. He was 100% truth and 100% grace. And perhaps the finest illustration of this comes from John chapter 8 when a woman was caught in adultery. We know this story. And people read this passage um, Actually, when Jesus was challenged, Jesus gives one of the most brilliant mic drop replies in the whole Bible when he says in uh, John 8, 7, let, he, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And you know many people read this passage and they celebrate the grace of Jesus. What an example of kindness. An adulterous woman, and he doesn't even condemn her. But we must read the Bible carefully lest we miss all of its truths. And listen to how he ends the conversation in verses 10 and 11. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Anybody catch that? Yes, Jesus famously does not condemn the woman who was caught in adultery. What else does he say? In verse 11 alone, he establishes three hard truths. Please put your thinking caps on here. Number one, Jesus establishes that there's such a thing as sin, that sin exists. He can't tell her to sin no more if there was no such thing. There are things in life that we ought not do. Number two, Jesus makes it clear that the woman is a sinner, that she sinned. And three, he says, stop it. Stop sinning. Don't do it anymore. Woman, I don't condemn you. You've been created in the image of God. You are infinitely valuable and loved. But what you are doing is not okay and you need to stop. As I bring all this to a close, let me say that Jesus didn't come into this world to simply be an example of grace and truth. He came to save us in grace and truth. Don't miss this. Jesus Christ came into this world to save us in grace and truth because in truth he shows us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And because in grace he offers forgiveness of sins and provides a way for eternal salvation every one of us desperately needs truth in our lives. We all need to hear from Jesus that the truth will set you free, John 8:32. But the truth is that we're not okay. We're broken. And I know that's not popular to say these days. But we are. And anyone who tells you otherwise isn't telling you the truth. Time and time and time again we mess up. I know what I think sometimes. I know what thoughts run through my mind sometimes. I don't know what runs through your minds. None of us have ever even made it a day without falling short, missing the mark for God's plan for our lives. And you know, all of this would make for the most depressing message in the history of Northbrook Church, probably the last time you'd ever see me up here, if the story ended there. But of course, it doesn't. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hallelujah! and so we all desperately need truth in our lives and we all desperately need grace in our lives too life is hard it's hard we need to hear Matthew 11:28 from Jesus come to me all you who are weary and burdened and i will give you rest jesus will do that for you he will meet you where you are We don't have to clean up our act before we come to the Lord. There is nothing you can do to make Him love you more. There is nothing you can do to make Him love you less. Rest in that. We can rest in that. He has grace upon grace waiting for you. The Bible says, and if needed, it even means he'll pick us up by the tail like a soaking wet rat and transform us from a sinner in need of salvation to a spotless lamb. It is by the grace of God that we can be forgiven. And in the words of that elementary school teacher's poem, he came to my desk with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. I took his sheet all soiled and blotted and gave him a new one all unspotted. And into his tired heart I cried, Do better now, my child. I went to the throne with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. And he took my day all soiled and blotted. And gave me a new one, all unspotted. And into my tired heart he cried, Do better now, my child. Friends, Jesus Christ offers us a way. His sacrifice on the cross was the single greatest act of love the world has ever known. Do you know him? Do you want to be like him? We can do that by being people of grace and truth like Jesus. Not half grace, half truth, not grace on Mondays and all grace on Tuesdays, all grace all truth, all the time. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these truths that your word has given us. Thank you for giving us a book that we can read to learn more about you. I pray everyone listening to this message would be challenged with fresh revelation to be more like you, to hate the sin and truth and to love the sinner in grace. Thank you that you loved us enough to forgive our sins and make a way for us to be perfect in your eyes like it says in Hebrews. Lord, there is someone here who doesn't know you. And there are some here who have strayed from their faith through complicated circumstances. Would you remind them and let them know right now that you are a far greater forgiver than they are a sinner, that you, Lord, can be trusted, that you love them. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.